Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Hello, welcome to the Naked Podcaster. This is Jen Taylor, and today I am with Karen Gedney, take two. Karen, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm so excited that we're doing a second visit on all of your information. Your website, which will be in the show notes with all of your social media, is discoverdrg.com. And we have shared your story, but we're going to kind of briefly share it again. You wrote a book that I have called 30 Years Behind Bars. So tell me a little bit about that, and then we can segue into what's new. Okay. 30 Years Behind Bars is my memoir. I was a prison doctor uh, for 30 years, put there by the National Health Corps because the prisons were having a hard time getting doctors. And I had, let's say, just lots of trauma and drama and things that really um, affected me on all sorts of levels. And when I retired... I had a choice. I could decide to retire and go off and play golf really pathetically or something like that. Or I could uh, decide whether I stood in the medical world or the correctional world. So I didn't know what to do initially. I ended up um, getting another degree in medicine, anti-aging regenerative medicine. And then I also wrote my memoir, which uh, turned out to be very like psychotherapeutic for me to write it. And when I finished it, it was sort of funny. I just sort of finished it the day I walked in, the day I walked out after 30 years. And my editor said, okay, Karen, you cannot leave it that way. You have to have some sort of uplifting thing at the end. You have to tell them what's next. And that's when I really wrote that, okay, I had maybe lost my last battle, but I still wanted to be in the war. And for me, that meant that I still had to be in the fight for shifting that whole prison paradigm from punishment and uh, recidivism to really prevention, healing, and reintegration. So the book helped me realize, hey, I need to still be in the mix. And I not only enjoy that, and I have to share this with you, Jen, tonight. So tonight at five or so is uh, one of my ex-felons is coming to my house. He will be my roommate. Yes. Holy cow. Yeah, so that's a big one. That's, uh, I mean, that's enormous. Right, that's, that's a big one. And, you know, I've always mentored, um, well, the kids at risk uh, through Big Brother, Big Sister organization. And I've always sort of mentored the um, ex-felons in the outside world who I would run into, like at the gym <laughs> or something like that, where they wanted to, ask me questions or touch bases. And when I retired, I ended up mentoring inmates. I had one inmate contact me through LinkedIn. Uh, 
and it was sort of adorable. He wrote, Dear Dr. Gedney, I don't know if you remember me from 1992. Okay, and bizarrely, I remembered him because of um, his medical problems with his hands. But he wrote, and I've written a book, Mayhem a Life, and you're in my book. Okay. How great. So I had to get the book to see. I'm only in three pages, but at least it's a good three pages. (laughs) And I ended up uh, finding out that he lived next door to me, basically in Washoe Valley. And he had left prison uh, with a GED, two years AA college degree when uh, they still had the Pell Grants. And when he left, he became a nuclear medicine technician, which is no small task. That's a a significant um, training. And then had a bad motorcycle accident a couple of years ago and decided to uh, stop that and pursue his love, which was uh, art. So he's really a significant artist. And what's really bizarre, I think this is all like serendipity in the world, this guy was trained in fine art by the guy who did my illustrations in my book, one of the ex-felons in my book. Yes. So you have a lot of, you know, degrees of separation happening. Yeah. Well, if you're in the Reno, Nevada area and people get out of prison and stay locally, it would make sense that you would run into people, but that's crazy. Yeah, because particular ex-felon is actually in um, California, not Nevada. Okay, okay. And then, bizarrely, and this is how I try to help my ex-felons, about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, they had the Reno Literary Crawl. Do you know that? what that is? Sixth annual literary crawl. Nevada Humanities put it on. And I saw that um, the... One of the workshops and big things was going to be Sean Griffin's workshop where he had taught at my prison system for 28 years, where he taught the inmates creative writing and um, poetry. So I went to it and I met four of my guys, all of who I uh, new from years ago that are doing extremely well because of their ability to be in that creative writing and poetry class where they enabled them to deal with their emotions. And what's wilder even yet is that the guy who took me hostage in the prison wrote a poem three days before he took me hostage called the last poem. And he was, that was his first night in that creative writing class in 1989. So that's crazy. Well, so you have to think in the prison system, I'm going to compare it oddly to a college dormitory. You know, you get all these people in one place that don't know what they're doing or what direction they want to take, don't have a lot of life experience, come with a lot of, like, I think about, you know, all my kids going into college and stuff, come with their own set of baggage, even though they're young and don't have much life experience. You're talking about in a prison, yes, they've done bigger, badder things and got caught. Right. 
But similarly, it doesn't mean that they aren't smart, that they're not good people, that they don't have a lot of wonderful qualities. They don't have any clue what to do or what they like to do. And they take advantage of that. It's, it's crazy for me that you were a doctor in the prison system, were taken hostage. It was such a crazy situation, including a bomb that killed the guy. I mean, like the whole situation. And then you turn around and go, wait a minute, the system's broken and I want to advocate for these prisoners. Right. right. How, how often do people ask you about that aspect of it? Because well, I know you, so it doesn't seem odd to me anymore, but I get that it's odd. Yeah, well, it's odd because people ask me, why didn't you sue? Why didn't you oh. leave? Right? I mean, this is yeah. their, their, their okay. response. Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you uh, get out of your contract with, you know, the National Health Corps that put me there for four years? They were all trying to figure out uh, why I didn't uh, chuck it in, basically. And especially, they were very avid about suing, you know, the prison for what happened. And those things just never occurred to me at all. But I mean, suing, I despise lawsuits, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so th that never occurred to me. And, uh, and it also never occurred to me just not to go back to work. And I, that's, as you know, I have German parents and that was just the way I was trained. But it was really um, the aftermath where I really saw the uh, lack of compassion on the custody side and then the compassion on the inmate side. And it was like flipping the whole um, system on its head for me where, wow, the people who technically should be my um, compatriots many times show characteristics that are uh, not good. Abuse of power, stepping on someone when they don't have to, making things worse when they don't have to, uh, not showing compassion, not only for the suffering of inmates uh, who have medical psych problems, behavioral problems, but also for each other, um, including me, where compassion was really looked at as a vulnerability, a weakness, a security risk. And that just um, on one side, I could understand their idea. But on another side, I realized that this is the worst thing possible to not have compassion, be, mainly because for me, I'm more of a pragmatic, compassionate person in that compassion allows you to try to try to understand, to try to develop insight, to have curiosity. If you just judge, that's an evil person, that's a bad person, everything's shut down. True. If and I love that point, though, that the people that were working in the industry were the ones that you saw some of the worst behavior with. And the inmates, you might have had a, bad, a really tragically awful experience. But for the most part, overwhelmingly, 
you had good experiences with the inmates and you talk about that in the book, but, and even more since then, I mean, you, you ended up not only doing your four years and not suing, but staying for 30 years and retiring, which I'm sure a lot of people can't imagine doing. And now I can't, I can't even think about you retiring with a Mai Tai on the beach forever. (laughs) But now, so Sean Griffin, um, taught this class and really touch what, so are you, your goal is to get more programs like that in the prison system to really help Right. And, and, you know, it's sort of funny. Uh, what is it? October 22nd, I will be giving a talk at Truckee Meadows Community College for their Distinguished Speaker Series. And my topic will be on um, a holistic approach to prison reform, because as an internist, um, by training, I'm sort of a jack of all trades where I sort of look at everything and then I try to diagnose the problem. And I always saw the prison and the uh, medical world doing the exact same exact problem where they spend all their time, energy, and money on the tail end of a problem. Yeah. You know, whether it's a heart attack or whether it's a criminal violent act, everything was on that versus wait a second, uh, what can we do to prevent these things from happening in the first place? And then if it does happen, what can we do to help that person so it doesn't occur again, right? That sort of thing. And um, when I wrote the book, you know, that's a piece to just get the public to see the inmates through the eyes of someone oriented well, who was not judgmental, but who was just sort of like clueless. <laughs> you know, I was like <laughs> a babe of the woods. I was naive, but I didn't really go in with any idea. So to be able to go into something and then be curious and to try to understand is very helpful in any situation versus you go in with a preconceived notion and you're stuck, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you, you were naive. Yeah, yeah, it was very naive. Very naive. And it's, you know, it's sort of weird. It's, I mean, I didn't grow up like in an inner city or anything bad like that. But I grew up with a mother who survived the worst of the Second World War in terms of starvation and being a refugee and being in prison of war camps and freezing to death and seeing bombings and all sorts of horrible things and people killed right in front of you and people raped by a hundred drunk Russians and whatever, you know. And for my mother, you know, I grew up with stories of um, abuse of power and, uh, you know, how humans can be really horrible to one another. But for some reason, my mother... Uh, I don't know, by genetics or whatever went in her head, she didn't look at people as bad or good. She looked at it as just surviving and then looking forward. You know what I mean? 
She wasn't as curious as me, though. Maybe it's more, I'm more scientifically oriented, where I, I want to know, how come people do this? What's up with their brains, right? She's like, well, that's the way they are, and I'm going to go this way forward. Yeah. Right? Well, that's understandable, con- considering her upbringing. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. But you were naive and you were curious, which was a great combination, not for the negative event that happened, but for everything else. Right. And even yeah. after that, you remained open. Right, right. And it, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's sort of like now where, like I told you, an ex-felon is going to be my roommate, right? You know, most people would think, oh, God, Gabby, what are you, like, like naive of steroids or something like that? But uh, for me, part of me is curious how this piece will go. And as you know, my husband died in February. So, you know, seven months, I have a big house, um, and I have room, and uh, I know this guy, probably better than I know the majority of people because when you watch someone in a prison system for, and he was in 20 years, you know, when you watch someone um, deal with the worst of the worst and still have the best of the best behavior and also be a worker and uh, help and learn and, you know, sort of like, it's not only me who thought he was the cream of the crop. An assistant warden thought that. The director of prison industries thought that. So it's not like I'm, I'm just seeing one piece. See, and he actually worked as a volunteer for one of the programs I taught in. And was, uh, he was I taught a course called Health Related Recovery, and he was one of my clerks. I had a total of four clerks who really did a lot of things. I mean, they did a lot of my paperwork and attendance and coordination and helped me and kept me out of trouble. This is the other thing. They never asked me for anything. You know, they were, they were highly appropriate. Never said, hey, get me, you know, I got a cold. Could you give me something? I mean, nothing. Right. I mean, highly and and very conscientious and and very protective of me to keep me from, like, uh, Dr. Gedney, you know, you shouldn't do X, Y, Z because then da-da-da-da-da-da. They were protecting me. Uh, and three of the guys uh, came out before this particular individual, and all three are doing incredibly well. And I mean incredibly well. Uh, they're all very high up in their piece with their business, you know, in terms of supervising, managing, uh, doing highly technical things. I mean, they're extremely doing extremely well and they all had different um crimes you know that put them in uh and luckily also this guy i know uh has never had any problems with addiction which is something that i like and he's a bit of an athletic health nut which 
really <laughs> works for me, you know? Well, I think if you're comfortable with it, nobody should really question it, right, first right. of all. And, and I mean, I believe that things that happen in our past are just, it doesn't define who we are. It's something that happened to us or that we did. And a lot of us, all of us have made bad decisions. Some of us, not as bad, and some of us just didn't get caught. Right. So you're just seeing things from another perspective. What about, you're in the same prison for 30 years. So how in tune are you with the inmates, like in general, that were there when you were there that have gotten out? Are there ways that you can connect or that you try to, or do you keep track of the statistics or how they're doing? Well, it's a, a little bit of everything. I sit on the board for the Ridge House. The Ridge House yeah. is transitional housing for inmates who leave and then uh, who have substance abuse disorder. That Those are the ones who sort of funnel into the Ridge House. And I go, I mean, I attend the board meetings, but I go to the graduation thing every four months where X amount graduate from these uh, programs and then ultimately leave the transitional housing. So I run into a lot of my ex-felons from that who are, you know, really turning around their lives. Um, One guy who just got out after 44 years in prison, Mm -hmm. and he ended up in the Ridge House, and he wrote a letter to the board, the Ridge House board, thanking us for this opportunity. And that letter was like, oh, and I knew the guy. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and then as an example, one of the guys who used to be an ex-felon who worked in the Ridge House and now is like a truck driver, he worked out as my, at my gym and I sort of mentored him. He is now sort of the head of a inmate support group in the outside world called Hebrews 13 sort of a spinoff from their religious little group. And that group has about 20 to 30 guys in it who all were ex-felons who support each other. But Nick, who's this guy I mentored, he is now (laughs) sort of chaperoning them and uh, getting them to do good things all the time. So now they're pooling their money, making bag lunches and feeding the homeless on the weekend. (laughs) Really? That's <laughs> where so you see what I mean? So I'm like, and they feel so good about giving something back. You see what I mean? Well, I mean, I understand that, the feeling good for giving something back. And I also understand that they can probably relate to the people that they're feeding, even if right. they weren't homeless specifically themselves, yes. that being stuck or down on your luck or not knowing any better or not having options. I mean, all the things that can go along with being homeless, these guys get it better than anybody. Right, right. So what a so, great, so it is amusing. And then yeah. when you think about it, logically, it makes perfect sense that, of course, they are going to want to turn around and help people that are coming from her in similar situations that they were in. Right. Like it's, you were saying, holistic. Right, holistic. I mean, and the thing is, I mean, to me, um, if people become, see, when people aren't whole, it's very hard for them to help. And they are usually hurting on levels where they end up then hurting other people. But if they are more whole, 
they're far more likely to be in the helping arena and not the destructive arena. And that's, that's one of those things. And bizarrely, um, Joaquin, who's, who's going to come tonight, he belongs to a little church. So he's got his pastor <laughs> into now helping the homeless as well, where that church never did. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's it's sort of funny because I am not religious. You understand? I mean, I am uh, I'm not aligned with any religion because I must say I've always found them sort of divisive because they have different ideas and then they fight over their different ideas. Where I'm more of the holistic thing, like, well, what are the common similarities people can <laughs> agree on? Not like, no, oh, this is the only way. Maybe. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. I can understand that. But when they find, I mean, whatever, whatever anyone finds, but in this case, inmates, whatever inmates find that really helps ground them and they have a purpose and a cause and a reason right. and they're passionate, that's amazing. And it's great that he's getting other people on board. Really, I think inmates that come out and, and are doing well are the best champions for those causes, right. I would imagine. It, Right. And that's why, I, you know, this is also a secondary reason um, I'm, that Joaquin will be my roommate is because I look at him as he could be a very, very powerful motivational guy in that arena for all sorts of reasons. And I would like to help that. And, you know, as you know, in Reno, the rent there is just ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's really ridiculous. I mean, especially if you come out of a prison system with hardly anything and you have to start all over and you have to pay the parole officer every month, you know, and all these other things you've got to do. And then you're earning, I mean, you're working at a job, but that job doesn't pay that much. And you're clobbered with, you know, a thousand plus dollars. And he's just, he's just, when they come out of prison, um, they have to pay for two weeks, like in a flop house hotel, right? You know, that one room. So that one room in this sort of flop house place is a thousand a month just for a little room. Doesn't even have, you know, a place to eat. I mean, nothing, you know, just a little bed. That's it. Thousand a month. I don't know what it's like when people come out in other places, but in Reno, the there's all this talk. If you go on to like places with the most job availability in the U.S., and Reno is one of them, and that's because it's warehouses. The average pay is eleven dollars an hour, right? Yeah. But to make the rent, it's considered one of the most expensive places in the country. It was in the top five the last time I checked because of this discrepancy between what you make and what the cost of living is. And so, in order to afford rent here, you need to be making well over. $30 an hour to right. keep it within that 24%. Right. It's ridiculous. I mean, everyone in Reno is hurting so much. I can't imagine coming in. I can't imagine coming out of prison and reintegrating 44 years. I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine five years. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to do that period. But then coming out with the expenses, I mean, we're kind of, it's kind of, the system is kind of setting them up to go back to the habits that they had that got them in there in the first place. And that's why, you know, this holistic approach where it's so important to, 
have a sort of transitional phase for them and, and a reintegration phase. The, the Nevada has one good thing, which is called Northern Nevada Transitional Housing. It's run by the prison. It's in Reno. It's got about 120 beds. You know, they select certain guys for this, but there a guy can stay in the housing, let's say, of this transitional thing in the prison. But, but during the day, they go out and they work and they come back and they stay there. And the prison garnishes part of the money for their uh, rent and upkeep. But there's a chunk the inmate can actually save. And then also get the uh, work experience and get used to having partial freedom in all this business. I visited that unit, oh, last year. They have Lieutenant Wilson, very nice guy. And I talked with one of the older guys who was there, and he was saying, oh, my God, it's a godsend. I've been here two years, he said, and I've saved 20000 Wow. Yeah. He said, because, he says, I don't use every thing I save. He goes, I'm not like the young guys who go to Walmart and buy ho-hos and juju beans and, you know, yummy bears or whatever, right? So, you know, he's older and he's smart enough to save every cent that they allow him to save. And after two years, he saved 20 grand. So when he leaves, yeah. So when he leaves, he's really going to have an ability to get somewhere. We're young guys who go, um, you know, go to Walmart and buy snacks and clothing and this and that. It's just, right. It's gone. It's gone, but you know, they have teachers there who uh, try to teach them some life skills and some finances to make them understand you have to have a system and a plan. That's really tough. I mean, again, I'm gonna go back to kids going into college and these are are people that might have gone into prison right around that age. Right. And most of their life experience has been in a prison. And so they don't have a plan and a, and I get that, but yes, you're right. Having programs that they can, if they don't take advantage of them, at least they're there and that would be their fault. So tell me more about the, um, the art. I think it's great that the inmate that did the illustrations in your book has a published poetry book and taught fine art to the inmate who's an author. So, I mean, like everybody's connected, I think. And, um, you're in that memoir. It just went full circle. So, and I love that it's possible to go into prison, get your GED or it was possible. Yeah. yeah. Get your GED and he got his associate's degree. I know you can still get your GED though. Yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah. Yeah. They, they don't have the Pell grant anymore. But I I will say one thing that uh, has happened. There's an assistant warden, Lisa Walsh. Now, she's incredible. Unfortunately, she'll be retiring. But she did something that's unique. She ended up realizing, okay, the guys, we do have a college program, but they have to pay. And a lot of guys, they don't have any money at all. She ended up devising a fundraiser. And this fundraiser is um, paying for 60 guys to have a college education. Okay. Now that's big. That's really 
That's huge. Yeah. And the way she did it, I, I just find this wild. She ended up knowing that inmates would uh, pay for food they would never get in a prison. And she talked with Costco and said, look, um, what if I order X amount of stuff once every three months and then the inmates, uh, you know, will pay for it, you know, because they have accounts. And she told the inmates, look, um, Costco, you can get a pizza, you know, those pizza things, a cheesecake. You know, this is not good for the medical world, but, you know, yes. they every three months. And she said, and the amount of money you pay, X amount will go to a scholarship for another inmate you know, for the inmate scholarship fund. Well, these guys who, one, work in prison industries or get money from their families, they save up their money because to buy something you never get, like a cheesecake or a pizza, right? They're, so they'll pay 15 bucks for the $10 pizza and five goes to the scholarship fund. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so... And, and Lisa, when she told me about this, I volunteered twice to go in and help with all the rigmarole of uh, get unloading the trucks, giving the food, you know, to the inmates, making sure their account slip is all in order, make sure these guys get the right things. It's... Uh, it, it was so exciting to see them so excited. And of course, they're like, Dr. Kidney, you coming back? No. <laughs> no. But, but, uh, but to see them, you know, was fun. Sort of like you see your children or something. Yeah. Well, and they know you and they're excited. But that's a really funny, backhanded, excellent way to get college degrees. Right. I, I right. love it. I mean, yeah. it's a win for everybody. The it's inmates, win, sit, yeah. it's everybody. Nobody's losing in that. That's, yeah. And the inmates know about it. So it's not, it's not yeah. underhanded. The, uh, you know, the officers or that help, they're really into it uh, because, you know, you're doing something good, but also the officer gets some of those snacks too because, <laughs> and, and the assistant warden, Lisa, she's really figured it out where she says, okay, the money will be taken off the books for this. Now, if you mess up inmate and end up, in the hole or you end up in more trouble and get transferred to another prison, you don't get any of your snacks and we keep your money, which also keeps, you can imagine disruption and violence down because they don't want to miss out on their yummy food. You see what I mean? Right? Oh, absolutely. Right. And then, and then she says, if you parole or, you know, for whatever reason you're sent out of the prison, um, we keep the money. Now that, extra money uh, is actually, you know, we have some extra snacks going on. Some, you know, there's always extra food because just the way guys move around in the system. And then she lets the officers, you know, have some because they are helping with making this happen. Uh, she lets the volunteers pick something they want. I never do because I know that whatever's left over, uh, she will have the inmates who are helping because they the she has inmate helpers and they put their ID in the little box and when we pick it, 
they get a little extra tidbit for helping, right? Nothing's money. Everything's always food, which is great. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's a great motivator, especially when it's something that you can't, you can't get. So I'm trying to think. I'm sure there are things that if I couldn't get and I had the opportunity to get them, I would right. do an awful lot to make that happen. Right, right. You so, know, it's right. Yeah. I mean, you can think like if you really loved pizza and the prison never, never, never has pizza, that can be a real thing you fantasize over. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about the creative writing and the poetry course that was taught and what you want to bring in or what you feel like is missing or how you think it could help. Well, the, the pro, that program enabled inmates to feel emotion without getting in trouble and expressing and more expressing emotion because to express love, anger, hatred, whatever on paper in a poem is very different than expressing it, you know, boom, towards someone and then you create violence and problems in a prison. But it also enabled them to uh, feel okay to access emotions. Because if you live in a prison where you, you don't want to, if you experience grief and you're crying, all right, then you're a target. Um, you experience um, anything that uh, looks like vulnerable emotion, you're a target. Anger is allowed to be expressed in a prison because that's the defensive mode. But to really care for someone else in a prison, also mm, weakness, vulnerability, that sort of thing. But one can do it through writing, through art. And the guy who did my illustrations, who was at this literary crawl, he talked about to the audience, he said, you know, he said, when I was in prison, he said, I faced a uh, life sentence and I got in at 19 or something, facing a lifetime in prison. And my first five years, I was just like walking around like uh, like a robot, and one, and I noticed this old guy walk past me, and I glanced at his eyes, and I realized that he had no soul left. There was nothing left, you know, like you know, like dead shark eyeballs. You know, there was nothing left. And he said, the guy next to me said, you know, if you don't choose to do something, you're going to end up like him. And Izzy, that's the guy's name, Izzy said it scared him so much that uh, he did not want to become like totally soulless, right? With nothing, no spirit, no spark, no nothing, but just dead inside. He said it scared him so much that he made the decision um, to access education. But he said the thing that really saved him was the uh, poetry and creative writing class because there they could escape from the bars, you know, metaphorically escape from the bars and be exposed to and feel things 
that they hadn't felt before. Plus, Sean Griffin, as a teacher, he cared about them. Mm-hmm. You know, he cared about them. He showed his care. He supported them. He encouraged them. He mentored them. And for many of them who had never had a father figure, that was highly, highly important to them. And Sean, in the outside world, still keeps, I mean, he keeps in contact with his um, students. In fact, Sean told me that I guess 160 had you know, been going to his classes long-term and finally left, and that only one returned to prison. Wow. Right. Now, you know, this is what he told me. Now, if that's true, then, you know, how much of that is the type of guy who goes for that, you know, class? And how much is it the class that really transforms them into a person who is not going to come back? But I mean, that's extraordinary to me. So when I, when I hear things like that, I think, okay, creative writing, poetry, or that ability to access that part of the brain uh, should be absolutely front and center in a prison. And also um, programs like the Puppies on Parole program, yeah. you know, the animal programs, I think are highly uh, beneficial in a prison. And it's not just for the inmates. It makes staff feel so much better when you see a dog. (laughs) Really? That's interesting. I mean, it makes the staff feel better. Okay. Right. And And I had talked to one of the wardens who had taken care of the maximum security prison where the puppy program first started. And he said, you know, when the cell block was getting, you know, antsy and I could feel the violence was going to come on. He said, I took in one of the dogs into the cell unit and walked up and down with the dog. And he said, the whole place changed its demeanor and quieted down, you know, because uh, one, they don't want to lose the dog. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to lose it, but also it just changes the demeanor to see the warden with a dog. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. Right. So it it just, when, and and when you uh, experience, and it's not only, I would have inmates who would uh, come in, you know, from the max prison where the puppy program was initially, and they came in. And this was a guy who would all, I mean, these guys would maybe whine and complain about every campaign known to mankind. <laughs> but then when they came in after that program, they're like, Dr. Gedney, I, I, I petted this dog and then this happened. And then we did that for the dog. And you know, the dog had a sore, sore shoulder. So we raised money to send it to a vet. And they were like, so they finally connected with something besides their aches and pains. And that was wonderful to see. I think animals are huge in that. I mean, I have a daughter who's 19 who has a um, a cute little dog that was trained as an emotional support yeah. animal and because she has anxiety and for her it's crippling and it makes an enormous difference. So I love that program because it's not a person. The dogs don't judge them. You know, right. they just, what a great right. setup. And, and, the, and the dog 
the dog can feel, and it's one of the only really, it's one of the few animals, or probably the only animal that truly looks at you. I mean, truly looks at you. I mean, animals don't like to really spend a lot of time looking, but a dog will gaze into your eyes forever and uh, make you feel like you're loved unconditionally. The art and the writing makes sense if you look statistically just at how much your brain chemistry changes when you smile at people. Right. Yeah. If you change your brain chemistry to have an attitude that's more grateful, if you journal things. So I think putting inmates in a situation where they have the freedom, that luxury to be able to express that in a safe place. It's kind of like the dogs. It's a safe place to express certain emotion that they just, they cannot in the situation. So how fantastic, but I cannot, I mean, it is astounding to me that only one person ended up back in prison from, yeah, yeah. I, from that's, 60. Yeah. That's what, that's I what mean, told, that's what Sean told me. You know, he told me that, um, you know, I will say, all right, I'll give you this thing. I, the guys that worked for me, who uh, were my volunteer workers, service workers, um, only one out of all of them came back. Now, these were guys, though, who, um, you know, sometimes you don't know who selects out, right? But I remember one of my workers telling me, and he said, you know, Dr. Gedney, the ability to do something where I'm a service to others, and he meant a service to the other inmates, he said, I realize that is the thing that I'll have to do forever to keep me from uh, going back into my addiction. So he's in the outside world now and has been out there for probably about seven years or so and is a supervisor at a high-tech company and is uh, completing his uh, degree in engineering you see what i mean yeah. but uh, but he but he was the one who really articulated how important it was to be of service so um i i think the ability to do programs where you can have guys be of service to someone else besides themselves because that altruism makes them better. And once they get a taste of that, uh, the average person likes that feeling. Well, and they yes. Just, right. Yeah, they like that feeling to feel like they've given. And then they just have to find something that they want that, you know, resonates with what it is, right? Yeah. So when you're in the prison system, if you have, how do you get chosen to be one of the service or one of the helpers in well, the first place? Yeah. Well, the one, um, they have to be disciplinary free. That means, you know, it can't be a guy who's constantly in trouble. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so they already start with a level that they are not the troublemaker. Then the second thing is, now imagine when I first started my programs, um, I didn't quite know, you know, like who to pick, right? I, I was a little clueless. So 
what I noticed was there was uh, there started a incarcerated Vietnam veterans chapter on the yard, and these were vets who um, actually a custody officer started this charter, and I. And I first helped that custody officer do a substance abuse class, and I relied on the incarcerated vets. And that's a different type of guy. That guy has had experience, uh, tended to be older, and I had them initially help me. And when they helped me, uh, they made it clear to me uh, who I should or shouldn't involve in because they knew, you know, who, who were the troublemakers and things like that. And then once I got a good foundation of good guys, they were the ones who chose guys for me. You know, they said, hey, Dr. Genny, what do you think about so-and-so? And I would interview him, and then I would realize, mm, yeah, this is a good pick, right? I love that they got to pick each other. What better? Yes, right. It's much better. And of course, I, of course, have the right of first refusal. You know what I mean? Yeah. These guys picked someone who they were working with in prison industry, who they had seen uh, be a worker. You know what I mean? Because to be a volunteer worker, you want someone who's actually going to do the work. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and I know from your book and our first email and conversations that you and I have had, you had better luck with the inmates being in the room with you, helping you with uh, sick people than you did with a lot of the staff. Not 100% either way, but I mean, I'd say from conversations and reading your book, you probably have had more good experience from inmates being the one as your helper as opposed to staff. I would say that's definitely true. And a part of it is, um, you know, the nursing staff, I had some very, very good nurses. Mm -hmm. And then I had nurses who uh, started to get um, jaded, you know, and uh, started to um, take things personally because Patients, I don't care if it's a free or an inmate person, uh, patients can sometimes drive nurses (laughs) crazy, (laughs) you know, with whining, complaining, manipulating, demanding, whatever it is. Um, And then on top of it, I had nurses, some nurses who were judgmental. So if, and then in a system, you sort of know who did what, right? It's on the news for heaven's sakes, you know, and then take care of them. (laughs) And so if nurses found out that a person was a pedophile, and let's say they had real issues with that for whatever reason, they treated that patient differently. And that wasn't acceptable to me. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that's not our place to make their life harder or not give them their medicine or not give them a treatment because you have an issue that they did something. And of course, some of those guys were uh, charged, what should I say, inappropriately, right? But it doesn't matter. It's, that's not our place. You know, like in a hospital, you don't take care of someone and then find out (laughs) 
something you don't like and then, and then to cut off their care. In a prison, though, that's, that, that can happen, and that's not acceptable. And custody officers um, who worked in the infirmary, some of them were all security-oriented, so anything that was medical to them was an annoyance. Like, what? I've got to delay my, I can't do this or I can't do that. Uh, you know, it's like, no, we need to take care of this person now. You see, I, it was like an annoyance to them. That wasn't their priority. Their priority was security. And if I, as a medical person, said, we have to do this first, they don't like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, it's count time. Well, he's having a heart attack. We've got to call the ambulance. Can't we wait till after count time? No, we can't. <laughs> you know, it's like, no. They don't like it. Moving forward now, you're doing a lot of speaking and yeah. connecting with people that that are aligned with your values, which I think has been a pretty good experience for you so far. Well, it, it, it has been. And in fact, um, just two weeks ago, someone sent me a newspaper article. In Carson City, there's a woman by the name of Catherine McCool, who is uh, starting a nonprofit called Reciprocity. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Catherine McCool starting this and uh, was in the paper. And someone sent it to me, so I contacted her, had a nice uh, lunch with her. And then I went to one of her advisory meetings, and this week there'll be another advisory meeting. And, uh, and I told her, I don't want to sit on the board because I'm sitting on a different board, but I would like to see if I could help and uh, steer people her way, you know, to be sort of like a helper type person, advisor helper. And so I'm going to bring with me... Uh, this week, Paul Corrado, who I had teaching in my program as the volunteer, who now is a teacher at that transitional housing unit in Reno. And he came through it through the prison ministry side. You know, I think it's great that people who have a religious bent, you know, want to help the unfortunate. It's my hope is that people who... Um, aren't religiously oriented, <laughs> we'll see that it's pragmatic to uh, be part of the solution in that prison arena because it will benefit them, their safety, yeah. their loved one's safety, society cost, things like that. What is your plan now moving forward now that you've retired, the book's out, you're doing speaking, what would you like to see happen and what do you want to be part of? Well, I want to be part, like, for example, if this uh, organization actually really goes somewhere uh, in that reciprocity organization, I want to be actively helping it. I want uh, to actively help Joaquin, the ex-fellow who's going to roommate with me, be a motivational speaker. I'm looking at maybe another book where I capture the uh, underdog stories of the inmates and, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, I'm hoping that uh, 
some bigger fish in the pond will be interested in having me talk or speak. Um, I think I told you I had two screenwriters contact me who are interested in my book, but they didn't go anywhere. But I'm always hopeful maybe somebody will take it on as a project or a documentary or something, not because of my, my ego issues, though my sister would like that. <laughs> but, but more like, well, just take the story and show the, the medical side, you know, the healing side. Right. right. And to, get, to shine a different light. I mean, you have a, such a completely different perspective on the prison system and the inmates than most people do. And you were in the prison for 30 years. Right. So no one can tell you that you're, I mean, you, you, you're not biased. You were there. It's not, it's not just me saying it and I've never set foot in the building and I have all my opinions. You spent 30 years behind bars with these guys. Yeah. And the biggest thing is... I've seen what works and what doesn't work. And, uh, and, I, and there I can speak with some authority because I watched success and failure. And I watched leadership styles, success and failure. But also, I would like people, um, sort of like in my position, where you leave a certain field and in retirement you're wondering, well, what do I do next? I mean, I can take everything in my life, like retirement, what do I do next? Death of a spouse, okay, what do you do next? Uh, aging, yeah. what do you do next? <laughs> I'd love that book, please write right. that Yeah, one. yeah, aging, what do you do next? And, and I think the bottom thing uh, below all of it is to keep on uh, learning, be relevant, and make society better than what you found it you know and uh and it's not only the outside world that's aging the prison is aging too and, and what to do with that all those old demented people in prison i mean that's that's a real that's a humdinger but that that is and, and what are we going to do with all the aging in our society they have to do they and especially the baby boomers, the baby boomers still want to be relevant and have purpose. And to me, the best piece is the prevention piece by looking at the kids at the highest risk and affecting them. Or if they're interested in laws and politics, look at the legislation that pragmatically will help reduce people funneling into the criminal justice system. Um, you know, so I, I see it like I see this whole big pie where prisons are just an example. You know, you can use anything, education, you know, well, whatever it is, you can use it, whatever. Karen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing a much deeper and different, much more unique perspective on this. And if anybody has questions, all your information is in the show notes. And I just appreciate you being here. Well, and I appreciate uh, you doing this. And thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.